Yeah, I have a I have a Karl Marx beard and a Friedrich Engels hair. So <laughs> is is that why they promoted you in the DSA? Yeah, they just said he's got the hair for it. You know, let's <laughs> put him in there. When do you think you know our politics will get back to the facial hair? I know Ted Cruz is trying to bring it back. Yeah, right. Ted's not as he does with most politics is not doing a great job single dad who hasn't slept in a week kind of facial hair. You know? I think it's I think it's stolen valor, too, because it's been a joke on Twitter for a long time that if you're going to be like a white dude on the left, you have to have a beard. You got to put in the work, man. No, Ted Cruz. It, no, that's that's right. He totally looks like Cheryl kicked me out. Can I crash here for a couple of days? Well, I went into my co-op. There's a co-op on the corner where I live in Chicago. And... uh the girl who works the deli counter said, hey, do you know Samuel Delaney, science fiction writer? Um, I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else did, but she's like, you, your beard looks like Samuel Delaney. So I was like, that's wow. the biggest compliment I've ever gotten in my entire life. That's impressive. I'm looking at a picture of him right now and oh, holy shit, dude. Congratulations. It's uh, another uh, instance of the intersection of uh, the left with sci-fi writers because Bernie Sanders effectively looks almost exactly like Isaac Asimov. He does. Yeah, there, but for a really thick pair of glasses. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, right? you should trade the glasses out and do a little upgrade on the look there. Yeah, and, and apparently not uh, doing like Joe Biden-y stuff all the time like Isaac Asimov reputedly did. Yeah, apparently he was kind of a creepo. Uh, it was a different time, you guys, okay? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait until I'm 70 and I can just say, look, everybody my age sexually harasses people. It's just what we do, you know? Yeah, we're, we're actually going to go down this road, but let's start the show. You are once again engaging with the Liquid Flannel Podcast, your premier, I think, Great Plains podcast for leftist politics pop culture all the all the stuff that you tune into podcasts for out of arlington texas i am matthew hodges joined by my inimitable co-host in omaha nebraska brendan williams brendan nice to be back with you Mm, i'm back i think this week i'm gonna be the liquid if you want to be the flannel i'm bringing it in smooth yeah, I forgot to wear my flannel tonight because it was <laughs> it was actually warm here. We also have uh, joining us a, an incredibly timely, sort of accidentally timely guest. No, it was on purpose. Uh, coming to us from... Take the credit. Yeah, I, I absolutely planned this out. In fact, I masterminded the whole thing. Uh, coming to us, uh, a new friend from uh, Chicago, Illinois, the co-chair of the Chicago DSA, Leonard Pierce. Leonard, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We invited you for your victory lap. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I got plenty of them. I've, I've been running the track for two days. Well, I, I want to dig into the what happened in the, the Chicago sort of upset election more uh, once we get into our, our second segment. But it's amazing to finally get you on the show. I've been following you on Twitter for... A good long time. You're a, a great Twitter follow. Oh, thanks. So you've read a lot of dumb tweets then. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm on Twitter all the time. <laughs> it's, so. it's Twitter. It's Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> uh, I thought maybe to start off our conversation before we really drill down on some Great Plains politics, uh, we could talk about just some of the developments that are going on in the broader political sphere right now, um, by which... 
I think we're going to mean for at least the next year what's going on with the Democratic Party primary. Sure. The election is coming up. Uh, oh, boy, it's only a year and a half away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, we're we're only 18 months out. So it's really go time. Yeah, it's, it's already so bad that uh, it's hard to think about the fact that it's going to keep going for another year and a half. It is incredibly bad. <laughs> I'm not convinced that the whole thing will just collapse and the Democratic Party will just be like, you know what? They'll just Never cancel mind. it. Um, we, tr- we, we tried. We're going to just, it's a rebuilding year. Uh, we're just going to take the season and we'll try again yeah. next time. We're hoping to get a really good draft pick by tanking our season intentionally. Yeah. Oh, is that the way it works? It's like a, sometimes it's like in football. If you, if you come in last, only in the most get... socialist sports, <laughs> if people like Mahoney and bunch of gig and uh, who's the guy from Ohio who just announced. Yeah. Oh, like a, Tim, was it Tim, Tim, Ryan? Tim Ryan? Yeah. Yeah. Like if that, who's running now that's basically the equivalent of like pulling guys up from single a <laughs> right i have a serious question is joe biden running not yet i don't think he is i'm not sure he can honestly it seems like he is but i have to keep reminding people he's not actually running and well he hasn't declared. announced yet but he's he's obviously like dipping his toes in the water he's, he's i mean he didn't even do that bullshit where he was like i'm announcing that i've formed an exploratory committee which is yeah, also right. what pete Buttigieg has done he hasn't also declared he's just formed an exploratory committee or oh whatever. really mayor pete isn't even officially announced i, I think it has something to do with like tax filings or registering well they're fundraising and if they don't get enough they won't run right sure they have to get at least you know x amount of money before they'll even bother which is one of my favorite things about the fact that so many people are running what three maybe four of them are going to be serious contenders and the rest are literally just setting money on fire yeah until the book deals though they can turn that into a war chest for a future pete Buttigieg ends up wanting to run for uh, like Indiana governor right. or something like that. It's a like there, pad. there is some financial trickery you can do to like redirect his presidential money into that campaign. Yeah, which is exactly the same thing that uh that Beto O'Rourke did. That he raised so much money during his his Senate run here in Texas, and then apparently that all just got kind of shuffled over to his presidential bid. Biden has not formally announced yet, but uh, you have to love him for already having decided that. Stacey Abrams is going to be his running mate without bothering to check it with Stacey Abrams. <laughs> it's called right. the assumptive close. That's yeah. how Joe Biden rolls, bro. Just why would you not want to be Joe Biden's running mate? It's you know? going great over there. Of all of this stuff, you know, ordinarily, it's fairly easy for me to uh, separate my like visceral emotional reaction from what's going on in politics. I'm obviously very angry about a lot of what's going on in politics, but usually it doesn't make me just like melt down and just start being caustically mean to people online. But the whole Biden hair sniffing, inappropriate touching stuff has got me I'm I'm livid about it. And yes, it's it's the behavior, but it's also the behavior of the kind of shitty hashtag still with her hashtag resistance liberals who are coming out and saying like, the, the arguments fall on a couple of different lines. One is like exactly the arguments that they made about the Republicans made about Christine Blasey Ford during the Kavanaugh hearings was like, if it bothered her so much, why didn't she speak up at the time? Why didn't she tell the vice president to F off? The people love when you do that. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this this incredibly powerful man, you're going to tell him like, "Hey, you're creeping everybody out." Yeah, that's that's not a thing that happens. And then the other main argument point is like, how can you be criticizing Joe Biden if, you know, we've got like President Pussy Grabber in the office? That's as the if, standard. You know, like two wrongs maker like like he did it too is an argument that actually worked past like kindergarten. You know, the very kind of whataboutism that people on the left always get accused of. I always have to remind myself that this is the eight percenter, you know, you know, Hillary dead enders who don't actually represent a substantial number of real world Democrats. But they're already starting to push the idea that number one this whole thing is being financed covertly by Russia. Right. And number two, they're going through Bernie Sanders, their secret agent. You know, notorious communist plant, Bernie <laughs> Sanders. It's the real collusion, if you ask some. Notoriously communist, the Russian Federation right now, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we have to talk about that video that Trump tweeted of creepy Biden. Holy moly, that thing was yeah. insane. <laughs> If anybody in the audience hasn't seen it yet, it's a video of Biden doing his, like, apology, and they've kind of photoshopped in other images of Biden, like, sneaking up behind himself and then putting his hands creepily on his own shoulders and sniffing his own hair. Yeah, Brendan, you asked, like, did the president's staff do this? And it's like, it's way too well done. For the president to have done well, it. Well, I, cl- I mean, well, the president doesn't know how to make a video. No. He can't even take a no way. Like that guy does not know how to take a picture with his phone. One hundred percent. Right. Like I don't. I don't even know how he would know how to like upload a video to Twitter. Like it must have been a staff tweet that Trump didn't actually tweet himself, which just opens up so many questions. Like, how was this decided? Like, was there a meeting where it was like, all right, guys. Time to slam Joe Biden. Like, what do you got? Let's hear your pitches, you know? (laughs) There's no way that, yeah, that guy does not have any kind of technological sophistication at all, you know? I mean, I I guess we'll find out during the debates exactly what line of attack you take against Biden, but there's no way it's going to be that sophisticated. (laughs) What's been so frustrating to me is watching the, they're not even backpedaling, they're just pretending like they never said it. Uh, where you've got a bunch of people like Neera Tandon, the Krasensteins saying like, you know, one thing that's not a weakness for Joe Biden in the primary is his creepy behavior with women because, you know, like Trump would never try to bring that up as a, a campaign issue. <laughs> as if he didn't talk about like Hillary Clinton's, you know, various corruption scandals all the time with, you know, a million of his own in his back pocket. Like, the man is not shameable. He he does not care about hypocrisy. Yeah, and another thing is, like, the only thing that Donald Trump is good at as a, I hesitate to even call him a politician, but as a public figure, <laughs> is he can own the shit out of people in a live setting. Like, remember when he was, he didn't do it so much during the uh, debates with Clinton. Remember when he was running for president against a pretty deep field of Republicans he just owned one of them after another, you know. He just yep. He just beat the shit out of me. Made them all look so dumb. The nicknames, the bringing up little petty quibbles with you know something that they might have done in their past. Yeah, and it's not like he's smart or clever or anything. He's just really good at like doing that thing that the halfway smart jocks did in high school, which is like 
just making jerk off gestures whenever you say <laughs> right. something, you know. He's just <laughs> right, like Jeff yeah. is a mess, and people are like, "Well, you know, he's not wrong." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's got a great point. It is amazing, and yeah, he's totally shameless about it, and that's like his superpower in a way. But yeah, it's going to be interesting because it seems like he doesn't really know like what he wants to do, and I think having so many candidates to attack really makes him lose his focus. Well, absolutely. And you'll note that, you know, at least this far out, you don't see him really trying to engage with anybody on any kind of like substantive policy grounds. Well, I don't think that's it's ever just happen. He's never, ever going to do that. <laughs> but if like some staff member of his is also helping to run his Twitter account, you would think that you will see some of that stuff. But so far... It's calling Liz Warren Pocahontas over and over. It's this Biden meme that they just made. Uh, I'm genuinely surprised that he hasn't made a beta O'Dork joke yet. He's keeping that one. It's scheduled to be tweeted next weekend. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a home run. It's a it's a great nickname. It, it will absolutely rally the fucking chuds who apparently like 99% support him. At yeah, this that's point. I mean, that's the real fucking problem with Trump is that hashtag resistance people still don't understand that you can't outsmart him you can't gotcha him you know you can't pull a oh you're right. a hypocrite you believe this but he doesn't care and the people who vote for him don't care either all they want him to do is get up there and own the libs and he's moderately gifted at doing that did you guys ever watch community do you remember the episode where uh britta and jeff get into this fight with these high school students and it just ends with them all going to doy at each other over and over again for like a half an hour. <laughs> like that's what electoral politics are at a presidential level. It's just like the Democrats and Trump are going to doy at each other. And it's just a matter of who pulls whose pants down first. <laughs> It'll be really interesting to see uh, as he as he goes through one by one and uh, comes up with nicknames. So did you guys see that story where they were having a meeting with Trump and Someone was like, whoa, he was actually taking notes in that meeting. Like, that's actually kind of impressive. He must have been really engaged with that topic. And then they looked at his notes and he literally just wrote sloppy Steve <laughs> on the notes. <laughs> so, so he literally all he does all day is just like brainstorm nicknames for his political yeah. enemies. Yeah, that's his one skill. And he he's doing all right. I don't know why we didn't see it coming, because that was one of the things that we knew uh, George W. Bush was particularly gifted at. It was that sort of frat boy mentality where if you can like nickname someone, then you have power over them. That was a, a codicil on his presidency. Whereas with Trump, that's literally his entire political philosophy. Yeah, insofar as he's ever had any strengths as a human being, that's pretty much it. You know, like, <laughs> right. he's not a good businessman. You know, he's he's not charismatic. He's He's just... He has this weird, he's managed to turn his rich kid entitlement into kind of a superpower. He just came onto the stage at a moment where a third of the country just decided, you know what, this is this is all we want out of a politician. He is a showman. Uh, he does actually have that skill. And I think that the Democrats certainly, and to a certain extent the left, underestimate the power of that to their own yep. peril. Because... What you have right now is uh, an electorate that are just so tired of hearing politicians say one thing and do another thing. And at least Trump 
like goes after the right targets a lot of the time. And by right targets, I mean, it's not great that he's scapegoating brown immigrants all the time, but you can't fault it as a workable political strategy in our political day and age. One thing that's really interesting, and I've, I've tweeted and I've written about this a lot in the past, is I'm old enough to remember the Reagan era. I was too young to really be aware of it when he got elected, but for his second term, I was 14 or 15. And 1988, when George H.W. Bush won, that was the first election I voted in. So I remember the Reagan era pretty clearly. And as much as we like to talk about how Trump represents this really unprecedented new development, you know, a guy has no respect for the office and he's just this clown who goes up there and dances around while you know, his cronies loot the public till. That's exactly what Reagan did. Sure. And if Trump has a a precedent, it's Reagan 100%. And everybody forgets that, that he was so... Reagan wasn't as completely witless and brain damaged as Trump is, but he didn't know anything about politics. He didn't care. He was just a performer. And they had stuck him up there because people found him likable. And it was the same thing. Like, the Democrats kept going after him about policy... And saying, oh, gotcha, you know, you say this, but you're a big hypocrite. And it just rolled off of Reagan's back because people, he didn't care. And nobody else cared because they thought he was so likable. And so they just kept going after these these attacks that would have worked against Nixon or would have worked against, you know, any other prominent Republican. But against Reagan, they did nothing because Reagan didn't care about politics. He was just a personality. And he let that shit roll right off of him. Well, and you said earlier that uh, like Trump isn't particularly likable, and I think that that's a bit of a, a misstatement. The thing is, he's incredibly likable to a very specific and very activated part of the American electorate right now, who are largely uh, like older, white, working class. You know, we we can we can call them chuds. We can we can talk about, you know, them hooting and braying at his his rallies. But the thing is, like, the guy is still packing the house. Those people are actually out there. They actually do find him very charismatic. They find him very likable and thus find his particular brand of politics very convincing, even as he's working with his cabinet to, like, undo a bunch of the stuff that they directly benefit from. Yeah, I mean, I would only throw in the typical socialist caveat that I don't really think his base is as heavily working class as they're thought to be. I think most of his base is like white middle and upper middle class. Like there are people who own car dealerships and they're local fast food franchise mavens or something like that. It's your like sunburned golf dads. Yeah. Or even like Duck Dynasty dudes where you're like, oh, that's a hard working guy or whatever. And he's like, no, nah, he just loves Duck Dynasty and he just <laughs> right. dresses like that because he's actually like a millionaire. <laughs> I mean, the Duck Dynasty dudes themselves who came from like a, a solidly like upper middle class background and just adopted the kind of the trappings of being, you know, men who work off the land because it worked for them uh, as a TV show. But, you know, I think you actually can use policy to debate with with Trump and Trump supporters because it's the one thing that they don't really know how to respond to. The trick is you just have you just can't do boring policy. You have to do yeah. exciting policy because that trips them up. If you just say some complicated bullshit like, 
you know, what like Klobuchar is like, what we need is more tax advantage savings accounts for educational sure. spending or whatever. Yeah, tax credits. Yeah, those fucking wonky ass bullshit things when people want, like, they want a moonshot. They want to go back to the, right. the age of, you know, John F. Kennedy and say, like, we, we'll do this thing because it's hard. Or, Everybody understands free health care. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody understands, like, beating the Axis during World War II. You know, you know health care is a perfect example because Trump said in the past, like, everybody should have health care and the government should pay for it. He said that and people applauded him. Uh, his supporters said, yes, he's right. He tells it like it is. And then they, people just forgot that they said that. But, I mean, he's gone so far now as to say, you know, Republicans are the party of health care. And we'll tell you our secret health care plan after you vote us into office and not a second before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like Nixon's secret plan to end the Vietnam War. You only get to hear about it. after you <laughs> Even I think on the right, people are, are not quite dumb enough to, to fall for that one, and especially when he's already pulled it and we already saw what happened, which was nothing. So I think it is possible to you know, kind of get him on the back foot. Because if you're talking about bold policy from the left, you're kind of setting the tone of the conversation. If you're trying to out insult Trump, you know, you're you're coming down to his level. And when you try to compete at his level, you can't because it's like, you know, wrestling with a pig or whatever, you know, playing chess against a pigeon. Wrestling is a really good analogy for that, right? I mean, it's his form of politics is like professional wrestling, where it's all showmanship and like trying to one up somebody else and nothing really substantive is happening. Right. But I think it's just so easy to just go up there and say, hey, you know, Trump said healthcare sucks. Trump said he was going to fix it. Here's my plan to fix it. You know, let's see his plan. And his plan is, well, I'll tell you after I win. He, he lost that one. You know, if that's his yeah. line, you, yeah, did, right. that, you didn't win that one. So if you can keep him doing that. I think there is actually a way that you can actually use policy to outperform Trump. Well, Brendan, I think that's a I think that's a terrific last uh, statement to make just on the presidential primary um, as we go into our break, because uh, when we come back, I would like to talk to Leonard about um, how these things are moving on a more local level, because as we mentioned before, there's been a significant movement in Chicago politics that are right along the lines of of what you're talking about here. So why don't we uh, why don't we take a break there? I'm going to play a clip of a Fox News host getting completely befuddled by some dude at a bar who actually had cogent answers on the Green New Deal. Uh, and we'll be back. Ben, thank you. Jack. Jack is an info specialist, and he really wants Howard Schultz to talk about climate change, specifically the Green New Deal, which you support. Why do you support it? Yeah, it's really important we keep below two degrees Celsius of average warming. Otherwise, the consequences are going to be devastating. How do we pay for it? Yeah, how do we pay for World War II? At the end of the day, when something is this important, our economy is going to suffer if we don't pay for it. Okay, but you do agree with the sentiment that this is as big a deal, climate change, that is, as World War II. For a little over 400,000 Americans died in World War II, and climate change is killing 150,000 people per year at least. Okay, let's talk about the money because that's a huge part of this. How are we going to pay for it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, during World War II, for one thing, the government just pushed some of the cash up front and raised some tax on some folks. Uh, but at the end of the day, it stimulated the economy so much that everyone benefited. Okay, so to review, you are in favor of raising taxes in order to support the Green New Deal. If that's the optimal solution the economists sort out, I'll go with that. So over the break, it was made obvious to me that I said something very offensive about professional wrestling. So, Leonard, you've got the floor. What, what did I get wrong? 
Yeah, I just want to shout out to all my professional wrestling fans and comrades and point out that, in fact, professional wrestling at its worst is much more meaningful and profound than anything that's ever come out of the Trump White House. <laughs> Although, you know, Donald Trump has been in a professional wrestling context before. Yeah, that's so. right. Well, he, Linda he did, McMahon uh, was the head of the Small Business Administration until she just uh, resigned, so. Yeah, but he was actually in WWF broadcast. You know, you can uh, find footage of him getting, you know, uh, the shit beaten out of him by wrestlers. Uh, yeah, he he hit what's-his-ass with the chair at one point. Who's yeah, that used to... leftist wrestler whose, like, gimmick is, like, I'm a communist, and then everyone, like, boos him? Oh, yeah, that's there's right. A, there's actually a number of legit lefty wrestlers these days you know i could turn this uh, we could talk about this all show but <laughs> there there is a uh, like there's a guy who's wrestles in the south whose gimmick is like being oh i'm a really pc soy boy you know uh, lefty. that's a guy yeah he's out of yeah, but that's largely just a gimmick so chikara which is one of my favorite wrestling promotions just had uh their what they call their young lions championship which is for like up-and-coming wrestlers and the person who won it was the first non-binary identifying wrestler to ever win a championship. Huh. Uh, there's a great wrestler in Britain named Zack Sabre Jr., who is a legit hardcore lefty and a huge Corbin supporter. <laughs> um, there's a couple of wrestlers uh, in the U.S., including a guy who wrestles here in Chicago a lot, who are there, I guess I'd basically call them like Black Lives Matter wrestlers. So there's, like, legit lefty wrestlers now. Zach Chaber Jr., uh, if you're listening to this, and I'm sure you are, please come on Liquid Flannel. We'd love to talk to you. He's great. As we talk about uh, various wrestling matches, we have to focus on um, this really serendipitous thing that put Leonard Pierce on our show, which is you guys just won a major bout there in Chicago against the corrupt-ass Democratic Party establishment in the city of Chicago. I, I want to hear all about it. Not to get too deep in the weeds with background, but Chicago is somewhat uniquely corrupt. You know, it's a, it's one of the most... Yeah, just Google, like, Chicago politics and then read that for, like, six months and then, and then come back and then press play again. Right. Go, yeah. go back go back and listen to the episode that we did with Connor Golden where we tried to figure out who the like worst politician from the Great Plains ever was. And at the end of our bracket came up with Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> He's pretty bad. Yeah, we're uh, all happy to see that guy go. Not just Chicago, but Illinois politics in general. As, as a little bit of background, I was born and raised in Arizona, which is the only state that I know of that had two governors in a row impeached. Illinois, I think, is the only state that had three governors in the space of 20 years all go to prison. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which I so, actually think, you know, is a great policy. I really think we should do that more. <laughs> No, they just, all just put it. more politicians yeah. in prison. Yeah, yeah, for the horrible things that they do when they do horrible things. That's well, what should vote, happen. Vote Liz but, Warren because apparently that's part of her uh, her platform now. Yeah, I'm all for it. Essentially, Chicago. It's when you talk to people who aren't really that informed about Chicago politics, they make a lot of assumptions. They go, "Oh, it must be really great living in a big liberal city with strong unions and." The Democrats are in charge of everything. And that's true as far as it goes. This is still one of the big union bastions in Chicago, or in the United States. 
And yeah, the Democrats are in charge of everything to the degree that this is the third biggest city in America and the Republicans literally don't even bother to run anybody for mayor. Right. Well, or that's why like, like literal Nazis run because no one else was doing it. So they're like, why not? Right. Why not just be a Nazi and run for Congress the state Senate but, or whatever? But the Democratic Party here is intensely corrupt. It's very, very much controlled by a machine. And that machine has taken a lot of forms over the years. For the longest time, it was what they called the Daily Machine, uh, you know, which was uh, Richard Daly, his father. Didn't, didn't the other the guy 50s. just run? His brother, yeah, Bill Daly, just ran. He spent $8 Amazing. million on the campaign and came in a distant third. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it was very gratifying to see a Daly eat shit like that. <laughs> um, Mayor Daly, who... And this is always my go-to illustration of how both completely corrupt and hilariously great Daly was. This is a guy who made an airport disappear overnight just to spite his political enemies. <laughs> That's a real Chris Christie move. <laughs> yeah. So when he stepped down, Rahm Emanuel took over and things got proportionately worse. Because as bad as Daly was, and he was bad in almost every measure, measurable way... He at least cared about Chicago. This was his city. He cared about the people who lived here to a certain extent. He put a lot of money into civic projects, you know. Rahm Emanuel didn't care about anything. He cared about making his boosters rich, you know. And so it became this very neoliberal, you know, shut down all the public services, privatize everything. Complete austerity, defunding yeah, public schools austerity, in particular. charter schools, yeah. yeah. Overtly cover-up police brutality. Yeah, literally cover-up murders, yeah. Sounds like that a goddamn Republican to me. Things, well, that was one of the things that led to his downfall, is, you know, shout-out to all of the progressive black and Latinx organizations in Chicago, because they have been organizing around that particular issue, the issue of police brutality. And Chicago is unbelievably awful in terms of police brutality, you know, since long before DSA was big enough to make any kind of political impact. Oh, sure. We were we were just talking about the Jussie Smollett case uh, last week and how even if you're not certain about exactly what happened in that uh, in, in that very strange collection of incidents, uh, one thing that you can still be fairly confident in is that the CPD is fucking awful and will absolutely lie to be able to convict a black man. Yeah, and I mean, this is a this is a police department that literally ran a secret torture cave. You know, it's well for, documented with, with yeah, you know, indisputable for like evidence. twenty years around that issue, and especially around the murder of Laquan McDonald, there was a huge amount of organizing, and that built up the power of a lot of community organizations who Chicago DSA has been trying to work with and ally with. And out of that milieu came a lot of DSA members who wanted to run for city council. And in Chicago, by design, we have a city council that is, it was built to be kind of ineffective. There's, you know, a lot of cities, big cities have a city council of like, for instance, I lived in Seattle for a while. Their city council is either seven or nine people. Yeah, uh, I Chicago think Omaha's has about the same. 50? Yeah. Yeah, fifty. Jeez. Oh, so it's like a it's like a little it's like city congress house chamber. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that that might actually make more sense for a much bigger city like that, though. Well, but it was designed so that no council members would individually have enough power to do anything. 
And that was because we always had a really strong mayor and the mayor could get whatever he wanted done by pushing it through the city council who were generally considered to be beholden to the mayor. Right. But when Daly stepped down, the Daly machine, the Democratic machine, the Cook County machine, whatever you want to call it, it started to decay. It started to break down. And Rahm Emanuel wasn't really able to build up anything in its place because he didn't have that kind of local control. He was an outsider. I mean, he came from Chicago, but he didn't really have any close ties to to the machine. And he just handed over everything to the investor class. And that actually pissed off a lot of people at the machine level. When the, the Laquan McDonald thing happened, that was kind of a last straw for him. He was already widely hated. He almost lost his most recent, recent election to Chuy Garcia, who is a progressive. Mm. It was widely believed that if he ran again, he would not win. And it would largely be because of the Laquan McDonald stuff. And then a number of other big machine politicians who had been aldermen, that's what our city councilmen are called, aldermen. A lot of them went down in particularly spectacular flameouts. One of them, a guy named Proco Joe Moreno, Google him and his (laughs) downfall. It's a pretty hilarious story. He was, uh, I guess the genteel word would be dating this woman. And... (laughs) He either loaned her his car or she stole it. And so he had the, he called the police on her and had her arrested. And then when she, she said, will you let me take your car? He tried to call the cops off of it and say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I was mistaken. She didn't steal the car. But it just was so inept and corrupt and dumb Jesus. that everybody was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> um, another one was Councilman Ed Burke, another legend of the Chicago machine, guy who was in power for essentially 40 years. He has been so spectacularly corrupt for so long, he's essentially, he can't be stopped. He, he'll, he'll serve out the rest of his term in prison, probably, <laughs> and then they'll keep electing him until he literally dies. But he not only got busted for trying to extort money out of a Burger King franchise... <laughs> It was the same Burger King franchise location that Laquan McDonald got shot in front of. Jesus. So he picked like the most famous one in America to do it. And he got caught. And when they came to his office, they seized like 25 guns. Like he had this huge stockpile of guns in his office. Totally normal to have as a city council member. Yeah. And he still won. Like he won his election after all this. And there were a bunch of other ones. There was a there was an alderman named Solis who it turned out uh, was wearing a wire in a lot of his meetings with other aldermen and talking about corruption and shit. And so all of these aldermanic slots opened up and DSA was just starting to get big in Chicago around that time. Uh, I'm almost through my term as co-chair and I've been in it for about a year and a half. And it was about a year into that when we went from about three or 400 members to 2000. And so we had a lot of people who are like, well, you know, I'm a DSA member and I'd like to give it a shot. You know, there's, there's a lot of wide open seats and we worked really closely with working class organizations throughout the city, uh, United neighbors, uh, the, right. Yeah. So I'm sorry, before we start talking about the, the organizational stuff, let's just, uh, I don't think maybe our listeners know exactly what the outcomes were. Because you just had a big election, and that's why oh, we're sure. talking so, about yeah, this. Oh, sure. So yeah, the 
So the elections were in February, and we elected a uh, mayor, uh, a new treasurer, some other positions, but we also had elections for all the aldermen and all 50 wards. We had six candidates that were both DSA members and endorsed by DSA. Every one of them won their election, except for one, Rosana Rodriguez, who hers is still subject to a recount uh, because it was very close, but she's currently ahead. Wow. And uh, they're counting one remaining, I think there's one set of votes they're recounting and then they're recounting the uh, mail-in votes, but she won during the first election. She won the the mail count and she's likely to, to do it again. Nice. So that means we're going to be going into 2019 with a city council that has six openly declared socialists and DSA members, which has not happened in any city in the United States for over 100 years. Well, and our, our friend uh, John Levitt pointed out uh, in a discussion that I think assuming the recount goes in the DSA's favor, uh, Chicago will actually have more uh, socialists in their city council than they have Republicans. Oh, they only have one Republican. Like I said, Republicans <laughs> don't win anything. All here, right. So. so it sounds less cool if you put it that way, but I'm just saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah take but, the win. Yeah, we have, I think it's safe to say that we have, and this is a, a less resonant thing if you're not from Chicago, but it's actually, I think, more meaningful. I think we have more socialists on the city council now than we have machine politicians. Yeah, that's that's even more important. Well, yeah, because so many of them bit the dust in this election. And that's the amazing thing. It's not only that DSA members, socialists, like really hardcore progressives won. They won against entrenched machine politicians who have been there yeah. forever, like uh, Pat O'Connor, who lost to Andre Vasquez. He's one of uh, the machine's closest allies. He was Rom's budget guy. Deb Mel. Uh, who looks uh, like Pat, Pat O'Connor has been holding that office for like 40 years or something. Yep. And Deb Mel, who Rosanna Rodriguez is running against, she's a machine politician. You look her up. She looks like a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> um, Popular she's, she's part of the Mel family, which they've been in power in the machine for over 40 years. And it's not just her and her father and her grandfather. They're also, by marriage, part of the Blagojevich oh, clan, which is another one of our governors who went to jail. The the last good Illinois politician. Um, Lego so snap on with, hair, cocaine and everything. It was He was amazing. With the two who won their election straight out, which is Daniel Espada and Carlos Rosa, who is my alderman. Yeah, we're going to have six going in. While the mayoral election, everybody's glad that Rahm Emanuel lost. But nobody was particularly, at least in our circles, particularly thrilled about either candidate. Preckwinkle is all right, but she's pretty compromised by her years dealing with a machine. Mm -hmm. um, and then Lori Lightfoot, she sort of presents herself as progressive, but her ties to the police are pretty disturbing. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to come back to Lori Lightfoot in a few minutes here, sure. um, because uh, as, as I'm looking at these names, so let's see, Rosanna, Rosanna R R Rodriguez Sanchez, uh, Jeanette Taylor, Jeanette Byron Sigcho, uh, how do you Sigcho pronounce Lopez. it? Lopez. Lopez and uh, Andre Vasquez. Uh, what I'm hearing there is a bunch of uh, very traditional sounding 
uh, like white male <laughs> names. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, as we all know, DSA is nothing but uh, white dudes. Um, right. Well, and that 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 was going to be my question. Then was uh, your your op ed in the uh, Chicago Tribune uh, specifically mentioned your intersectional like cross interest kind of cross platform work, and I was hoping you could you could speak to that. Uh, how do these candidates kind of rise to the forefront for DSA to endorse them? And also, what did your organizing look like to try to bring in these other uh, communities in Chicago that historically have been left out of that discussion? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, DSA does have the reputation of being kind of a haven of white men, and it's not entirely unjustified. Uh, I think a lot more is made of it in the media than needs to be made. But it's something we do try to address very strongly, you know, because, you know, our goal in Chicago is building these alliances and building working class power. And in Chicago, the working class power no longer lies with the traditional groups, you know, Irish and Polish and Italian craft trades. Now it's mostly uh, African-Americans and Latinx people who work in service industries. That's where a lot of the organizing is going on right now, uh, especially with unions like SEIU. Uh, who are organizing around like hotel workers, fast food workers, and other service workers, uh, along with uh, community organizations like the Pilsen Alliance, like uh, United Neighbors, uh, like uh, Black Lives Matter and Asada's Daughters. These are all people who are reaching out to traditionally isolated uh, communities because they know that this is where working class power resides in the new Chicago landscape. And it's very difficult to do at times because Chicago politics is very siloed. You know, people tend to have their own little organizational uh, structures, and it's it's very turfy. Uh, and I don't mean trans uh, <laughs> radical right. feminists. I mean, no, like, I get you. there's a lot of turf wars, is what I'm saying. And it's a difficult thing, especially because DSA is kind of considered the new kids on the block, you know, we grew, we've been in Chicago for a long time. We've been around for 30 years here, but we only got big in the last few years. And I think there was a natural tendency for a lot of, especially uh, groups in working class neighborhoods that are predominantly Latinx and African American to, to not trust us. But I feel like we went out there, we knocked doors, we canvassed, we did the work, you know, we identified the candidates who wanted to work with us you know, we went through a very democratic process within our organization to uh, endorse or not endorse particular politicians. And of the ones that we endorsed, uh, literally only one of seven was a white guy. Uh, all the rest were people of color. You know, my co-chair who wrote that editorial with me is a woman of color. You know, our, our leadership is extremely diverse. So while it's true that uh, the general membership tends to shade pretty white, and male, that's changing a lot. And especially the people who are coming into leadership uh, and the people who approached us, because we didn't go into any communities and say, hey, give us somebody who wants to run for alderman. All of these things developed organic organically yeah. out of community organizing. And we just went to the people who the community had selected themselves to represent them and said, well, you know, would you like to work with us? What can we do for you? I mean, having been a part of that editorial in the in the tribune there is that 
tendency for me to want to take a victory lap and say, yeah, this is so great for DSA. DSA did not by any means act alone. We were not the driving engine of all this. These people are all DSA members, and I'm extremely proud of that. But, you know, they come from an organizing background that spreads across literally dozens of organizations all throughout the city. Yeah, sure. Uh, that was that was uh, kind of the addendum to my question then uh, about you mentioned in the op-ed uh, that there was a lot of cross-organizational collaboration. And I was wondering if you could, I, I don't know, talk a little bit about some of the organizations that you worked with and, and how that collaboration worked. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I mentioned, um, one of the organizations that we worked with very closely with is United Neighbors. Uh, they uh, they have a very strong presence here in the 35th Ward. You know, Carlos Ro- uh, Ramirez Rosa, my alderman, uh, worked with them very closely. You know, they played a tremendous part in changing the politics of the 35th Ward, which is, uh, if anyone's familiar with Chicago, that's the Logan Square neighborhood. It's a, ne- it's a neighborhood that's gentrifying very quickly. Is that and the one with the big bean in it? That's the only thing I know about Chicago. <laughs> uh, that's downtown. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Chicago's gigantic. There. It's it's insane, really. Actually, how how massive the the Chicago kind of area is, and they they actually have a hilarious name for it, which is like the Chicago land area and surrounding municipalities or something like that. Okay. Yeah, Chicago land, right? It's a uh, Chicago land is uh, not only Chicago, but we we even get like parts of. Uh, Wisconsin and Indiana, like as part of Chicagoland. I, I assume that by the time I'm retirement age, Chicagoland is going to be like all of Iowa, Missouri. Mega yeah, yeah. We'll just, be called, we'll, we'll just call it like Mega City 3 and, yeah. and wash our hands. It really is a huge city physically. Like it's one of the largest cities. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sprawl. And one of the things that we deliberately set out to do when we realized we were going to... Uh, be playing a bigger part in electoral politics than we had before uh, because we really had not endorsed anyone very seriously prior to that because we just didn't have the clout to do it. One of the things that we deliberately wanted to focus on was approaching people in predominantly African-American wards, predominantly Latinx wards. And so that's where Jeanette Taylor came from out of the 20th. That's the thing that we need to do uh, is to build alliances with these existing organizations. Uh, Reclaim Chicago is another one that we worked with very closely. Um, they worked with Daniel Espada in the first ward very heavily. You know, these are all organizations that know the people who live in their neighborhoods, whereas we might not. You know, we might not have a lot of members on the ground in those areas. And we had, we, you know, we had to do stuff like make heat maps and power maps and like, how many members do we actually have in this ward? Like, what can we rely on our people to do? Right. And in my ward, we have a very heavy concentration of DSA members, so it was pretty easy to organize around that. But like in the 20th, we hardly had anybody living there. It was Jeanette who approached us and said, well, you know, I'd like to get your endorsement. You know, what what can we do to work together? And shout out to our electoral working group who shouldered an enormous amount of work in putting this all together. Hell if yeah. there's anybody in DSA who gets the credit for uh, these victories other than the candidates and the organizations they came from, it should be our electoral working group. They've done a tremendous job. That's amazing. It's such a, it's such a testament to, I mean, exactly the thing that 
uh, we leftists kind of ideally hold as a philosophy, which is listening, reaching out, cross-collaboration to support mutual things, and to see that come together in a place that has been such a like an establishment stronghold like Chicago is really inspiring. Yeah, and not just, you know, the the challenges that we face were not just that it's, you know, the the establishment, you know, the democratic machine, but again, the fact that up until recently, a lot of these community organizations were very siloed, they were very isolated, you know, they knew how to make things work in their districts. And of course, there's a lot of people in DSA, and I'm one of them, to be honest, who's fairly skeptical about electoral politics, thinks we need to organize around other things than electoral work, but also sees electoral work as an opportunity. I think that what we saw in them was their ties to these communities and their ability to tell us like exactly what people in those communities need and what they would rally around, whether it was rent control or anti-ICE uh, work union organizing or police brutality yeah yeah police brutality issues and what they saw in us was our ability to kind of communicate you know that we were a citywide organization that we are a big 10 we had the capacity to kind of break down the walls of those silos and open up possibilities for them to communicate their message to people who might not ordinarily hear it and that partnership yielded everyone we endorsed won I mean, if you had told me when I became co-chair that we would even be endorsing any aldermanic candidates except for Carlos Rosa, who was already in office, if you had told me you're going to endorse more than one and they're all going to win, I would not have believed it for a second. Yeah. Not in this city. And yet here we are. You know, it just shows that anything is possible. And it also shows you that the public is a lot more open to hearing us openly socialist message than we are led to believe. Oh yeah, sure. Just getting the just getting the name and the ideas out there are a huge coup for more left leaning people in this country. Uh, much less putting a bunch of people in office. Uh, well, final what an thought. amazing and necessary response to the politics of you know Rahm Emanuel and the kind of Barack Obama era, which again, don't forget, he was also a politician from Illinois, right. is yep. that they completely neglected that entire aspect of the party. Like even though Obama had been kind of a community organizer in the Chicago area, when he was elected president, there was not a huge focus on community organizing and grassroots level and like let's get people to run for city council and stuff like that it's totally necessary to start rebuilding that work it's actually easier in some ways than these huge national fights uh which and you can actually get results from a local election because you can have influence directly on people's day-to-day experiences yeah, yeah local, absolutely local and the, politics and those- are where stuff gets done and, and also the things that, by and large, are what are influencing most voters' lives. You know, if you got if you got somebody who's kind of ideologically entrenched on the national fight, but their local uh, significantly socialist city council is doing good things for their lives, that softens the ground for making more converts for, I guess, the thing would be radicalizing more people. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, to a lot of people and a, and a lot of voters, the Democratic Party is a, kind of a tainted brand in some ways. Sure. So it, there is actually a benefit to saying, hey, like we, we have some things in common, but 
you know, we're not exactly the same. And that's actually a, a huge benefit in many ways. Yeah, you're right, Brendan. And that's that's a great lead into I, I was going to ask for just final thoughts on this, because I know we need to wrap this segment up. Leonard, as as DSA now has basically enough people on the Chicago City Council to form an official caucus, the election of Lori Lightfoot, how are you viewing that? Do you think that she is by and large going to be an obstacle or an ally in the DSA's goals? Boy, that's a tough question. Uh, So I don't expect her to be much of an ally. She's been pretty hostile to us. And just before the election, we did not make an endorsement for mayor because uh, we don't really feel like either either of the candidates was all that well aligned with our values. Uh Um, So we did not want to endorse Tony Preckwinkle. However, we did endorse a statement by a multi-organizational sort of conglomeration of all sorts of different community organizations saying not to vote for Lori Lightfoot. The reason for that is she's she has had some very problematic work in the past with police organizations. Well, she worked for the like the police trade union or something, right? Well, she yeah, she worked for a police accountability board, but it did not push for very serious reforms uh, within the police department. Uh, it was a lot of us felt like she didn't really give it any teeth. You know, you can judge the the proof is in the pudding. Like her, literally, her first day as Chicago mayor, she named her as her uh, her chief of staff for the transitional period. And you know, like nationally, everybody's focusing on the fact that you know, oh, Chicago has elected a black female queer person as mayor, and yeah, I don't want to minimize that as an accomplishment. But, you know, we always say you got to look at the ideology, you got to look at the politics. Sure. And the person she named as her transitional chief of staff is Arne Duncan, who was a member of the Obama White House, who's locally notorious for he's essentially like one of the biggest advocates in America for charter schools. Yikes. And charter schools have had a devastating effect on Chicago. There's been all kinds of school closures on the South side, especially in African-American neighborhoods. And Lori Lightfoot's idea for all these closed down schools for 20 of the schools, she closed. Oh God, I saw this. Yeah. Yeah. She literally (laughs) wants to turn them into extra police academies, which is the last (laughs) thing that we need in this city. Wait for kids. Yeah. Yeah. They're little (laughs) tiny cops. You know, they're just going to put them in little uniforms. It's going to be adorable. Well, Zootopia Um, was very popular. (laughs) But, like, Chicago is already committed to building this new police academy, which is going to cost $95 million for one of the most corrupt and awful police departments in American history. And now she wants to make 20 more of them on the location of former schools that were closed down by Rahm Emanuel. And that's, uh, that's change. Like, that's progress. You can't paint yourself as a progressive if that's the first thing you want to do on in going into office. Yeah, you bet. So we don't expect her to be much of an ally, but with six people on the city council in a socialist block, and more importantly, probably around 11 or 12 who are in a progressive block, what we can do is it only requires five aldermen to veto any legislation. Wow. Oh, nice. So we can't, we maybe we'll have an uphill battle, um, when it comes to proposing and enacting legislation. But what we can do 
is harm reduction in a serious way. We can block a lot of what will probably be her worst moves. You know, if you have that many people pushing for a serious agenda, you've got people in six different wards who are going to be talking about this stuff all the time. If people start to sense that that's where the momentum is going, I think a lot of the aldermen who are kind of fence sitters about us are going to be more likely to vote our way. Hell yeah. Uh, what Lightfoot is also likely to be a weak mayor because she doesn't have a lot of connections uh, within the machine. She had kind of standoffish attitudes towards the machine to begin with. Chicago is going to get slammed with all kinds of budget issues, which spending tons of money on the cops is going to do nothing to, uh, you know, to solve. So I, I don't predict she's going to be an especially uh, strong mayor. So I think that's going to make the fact that we have this voting block all the more important. But one of the things that I, fo- I thought was really hilarious is that, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback from social media about the article in the Tribune. Uh, we had an article uh, talking about this in The Guardian, one in the Sun-Times, which is the other big Chicago paper, being a lot, getting a lot of press, and people are saying, oh, you guys are just going to bankrupt the city. You know, like, wait, who do you think's been in charge for the last... Yeah, that's, that's already been happening. <laughs> yeah, where do you think the money went in the first place? You know, like, Chicago has literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars just settling police brutality cases. Like, and you think we're going to be the problem? You know, like... Uh, watching establishment politicians at the the current breaking of the wheel is a pretty beautiful thing to behold. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think that's a a good enough place to wrap that up. We will take a short break and come back. And as if that weren't enough of a high note, we're going to try to even try to bring it out even higher than that. We'll be back. You must always remember. A poet once said. Life can be. Life can be a challenge. Life can seem impossible. Life can seem impossible. It's never easy. But it's never easy when there's so, so much, much on the line. Is on the line. It's so nice when we have a week when the lead-in to the high note segment is not the like the worst, most depressing <laughs> thing. It's a bad habit of ours, really. Um, so we're just going to keep this train rolling because every week we struggle to find high notes. But this week, it seems we have them in abundance, just continually coming out of Chicago politics. <laughs> what is this crazy world? What is happening? I don't know, man. I've lived here. I moved here in 1993. You sort of get to like the incredible corruption of the Chicago machine because it has such comical results. But it's ultimately always really hopeless. Like, it's, you know, the same people are always going to be in charge. There's always going to be this endemic level of corruption. And like the idea that we're going into this week with socialists controlling 10% of the city council. Yeah. And it's not just that, but in the actual, in the general election, we had ballot initiatives that passed overwhelmingly in every ward they were in. And those were all around stuff like recreational marijuana. Uh, Chicago does not have an elected school board. It's one of the only big cities in America that doesn't have one. And we want to have one because the current school board is just a bunch of charter school millionaires who are appointed by Rahm Emanuel. And the public is really behind that. In Omaha, that's one of the like progressive bastions yep. is like the, is the school board. I mean, it's that's like where people it, it's it's such an easy start if you want to get involved in local politics. It's a great entryway to politics. Yeah. 
but like literally everyone on it is a charter school millionaire right now. And every place that the charter that the um that the initiative to make elected school board in Chicago was on the ballot, it won. Every place rent control was on the ballot, it won. You know, I don't want to get too heavily into this as a high point, <laughs> but we do have a new governor. He's a Democrat. He's a shitty Democrat. He's a billionaire. Oh, J.B. Pritzker, J. right? J.B. Pritzker, yeah. Oh, so he's beautiful. not great. He, If history holds up, he will be our fourth or fifth governor to end his term in prison. Keep the streak alive, baby. But there's two good things. Well, he's a billionaire, though. I mean, that's it's tougher to get them in prison. Yeah, there's two good things about him. Number one, he's in favor of recreational marijuana. And number two, he looks like Earl the Dinosaur. <laughs> well, working class hero, yeah. climate change advocate. Yep. There's a lot to like there. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of ridiculous political figures that should not be in our lives, but yet are. Yeah, that seems like everybody's high notes tonight are ridiculous political figures. <laughs> I was so delighted and also a little bit horrified when today the breaking news was that Trump wants to appoint Herman Cain, former presidential candidate in what was that 2012 uh, yeah that's right uh, on the republican side and former uh what domino's pizza no godfather's godfather's, godfather's, godfather's pizza, pizza. Oh, the bring terminator it, bringing it straight back to the great plans he wants to appoint him to the federal reserve board i find it so hilarious how republicans have even i think in many cases forgotten who herman cain is because i was bringing it up to everybody i talked to today and they were like <laughs> yeah. who is that again creepy smile guy and they from had totally the meme, forgotten, right even though he was like he was like winning states in the primary in you know everybody had their turn in the spotlight uh when that primary was going around until he eventually dropped out due to a number of uh, like sexual assault allegations that arose about him. So oh, see, so just that, bad timing because you know, now that shit doesn't even that doesn't even move the needle. It's true. That's already it's known. But my favorite thing about him was everybody loves his nine 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 tax plan. So get ready for nine 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 savings account interest <laughs> rates. Everybody, that's going to be really really cool. Yeah, it's so amazing that like in his determination to bring back like every shitty right wing crank from the last thirty years. <laughs> Trump has finally landed on Herman Cain, and he's appointing a guy to the Federal Reserve whose entire tax plan literally sounded like it was a promotion for right. pizza. <laughs> like, 999, everybody, 9% for this. Nine per- Do you guys remember when he made his little movie? I don't remember a movie. I just remember the slow smile. Yeah, you gotta look it up on YouTube. It's <laughs> called 999 the movie, slaying the tax monster. Amazing. And. It's a, it's like a five minute long movie about the 999 plan, and it's got the IRS as this giant CGI robot, and by enacting the 999 plan, you kill the giant robot who represents taxes. <laughs> what could go wrong with this foolproof plan? Yeah. But my, my favorite Herb McCain thing was that in a campaign speech, he was like, and I want to close it out tonight with one of my favorite quotes from... Pokemon the movie 2000, <laughs> which is like, never give up on yourself. That's right. I forgot about that. It, that was so amazing. So hopefully he's able to inspire the Federal Reserve with some choice Pokemon quotes to get them to just move off of quantitative easing. We'll see. It's a bold strategy. It could pay off. Hey, I'm still just glad to have a person who's going to be on the Fed board who wants us to return to the gold standard. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I can't wait to exchange a couple doubloons uh, for a pizza in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> Everything's coming up. Do you know Kane. what? Uh, do you know what Herman Cain did before he was the CEO of Godfather's? No. What could it be? He ran four hundred Burger King franchises. Oh yeah, that's a good okay. step up. He came up with this thing called the Beamer Plan, and it was to make all the employees smile all the time. <laughs> Problem solved. So that helps to explain the creepy campaign ad where he smiles in slow motion. That's that's the person who's going to be running our economy. <laughs> well, at least we'll all feel really cheerful while it's happening. <laughs> and that's the point. The The new trailer for the, the Joker movie came out and the whole thing is about... All smiles. Put Yeah, put on a happy face. Well, as we talk about bizarre, out-of-touch billionaires, uh, I think my high note this week was... Watching Howard Schultz try to continue to do this thing. He's still doing it. I thought he gave up. With like no no apparent support. I can't tell that anybody actually is behind this guy as a candidate. Uh, but he did a uh, Fox News town hall today where he said his plan for immigration was he, he wanted to bring every congressperson into a room. Like a congressional chamber. <laughs> and say, you leave your ideology at the door and have an empty chair in the middle of the room and go, that empty chair is occupied by the American people, y'all. Like, you have to serve those people. And just watching him try to uh, basically, like, reboot the Charlton Heston thing from the 2008 election, it's amazing. I I love that this guy is going to spend millions and millions of dollars. What is it with politicians talking to empty chairs? (laughs) Well, that's how they practice their speeches, so they think it's relatable. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Chuck Schumer has his uh, like fictional family that he keeps in his head, and they're the ones who advise his policy. Yeah, well, you have to be a little bit delusional, uh, I think, to, to continue to run for president after <laughs> everybody forgot that you existed, even though you're the billionaire former CEO of Starbucks. But God, that was amazing. I, I think Chuck Schumer doesn't even claim that his imaginary family that live in his head are anything but imaginary. You got to kind of appreciate the honesty there that like it literally Mm -hmm. is just my imaginary friends who justify whatever I was going to do anyway. How different do you think his imaginary family is from his own family? Because I'm going to say not much. Right, like it's one tiny abstraction removed from just thinking about, well, how would this affect my immediate family? And to him, he's like, well, you know, they're probably just a normal middle class family, you know, making like a high six figure income. (laughs) What he doesn't think about is like the daughter is a cam girl and the son is uh, like part of the John Brown Club or something. Yeah, he's he's a he's a proud boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's who Chuck Schumer bases all of his policy considerations on. Wait, no, John Brown Club is cool, right? Aren't they uh, aren't they fairly like socialist aligned? No, they are. Yeah. Chuck Schumer is just hopping into like Fortnite Twitch streams and being like, hey, guys, like, what do you think about my my (laughs) uh, tweets? Uh, You You guys like Israel, right? I was talking to my nephew about Fortnite the other day and, and like the whole structure of the battle royale and how that came about. And I was thinking today about how you've got all of these liberals going like, this is a primary people, like the left shouldn't eat their own. It's like, well, literally the point of having a primary is a whole bunch of people enter and exactly one of them leaves based on their strengths and weaknesses. So 
delete your account. That's not helpful. Yeah, I stand by my, we should just decide the primary via Fortnite match with all oh, of the Oh, you literally think that it should be candidates. Fortnite. Yeah, we talked about that. Oh, right. God. You know what, though? Do you know the one candidate who is, you know, the one candidate who's likely to be pretty good at Fortnite? It's Buttigieg. He's the, he's the master. No, it's going to be Beto. Oh, well, yeah, it's true. I heard Tulsi Gabbard. He probably plays no it with slouch. his kids or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> What if it turns out that Bernie is, like, super good at, like, Fortnite? God, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Buttigieg has that, like, drone-striking Afghanistan yeah. uh, experience. I think it uses the same controller. So, you know, he's, he's already got a leg up on the competition. <laughs> so are, are we completely off Buttigieg now? We can drop the act and say, like, we were never actually really behind Oh, no, I still, I still like him, though. Brendan still likes Buttigieg. Buttigieg has the power... To make socialism boring. I didn't carry an AR-15 in Afghanistan just so that kids could carry AR-15s here in America. It's like, well... That's such a bad quote. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have been carrying an AR-15 in Afghanistan either there, Mayor Pete. I I didn't kill a bunch of people in a foreign country to come back and find out they were killing important people with the same weapon. (laughs) (laughs) He's He's so close. He's so close to it. But his power to take policy ideas that were once considered radical and make them sound like the most boring politician shit ever is an invaluable skill that will be necessary in in the coming years he'll be a harbinger he'll be he'll be a bit of a tribune but i I don't think he's gonna get the office are you you in the yang gang oh hodges is (laughs) i'm not what That is slander, sir. You just love you love his his circumcision policy. Or I whatever. think I think that it's really funny that a bunch of former Trump Pepe dudes are all in on Yang, who is in many ways the opposite of Donald Trump. But no, I I have never endorsed him. Well, Yang is the candidate that was doing that exact strategy that I talked about before, right? Where he's like, I'm just going to come out with the most ridiculous, extreme, you know, not terrible, but just unexpected policy proposals that yeah, but get that attention and ver- set the conversation. Vermin Supreme does that same thing and he doesn't get mm. the same kind of attention. Yeah. No, I like that guy too. I think, <laughs> I think he should run. Has he announced his 2020 yet? He needs to get in on this before Lord Buckethead wins the prime ministership. Yeah. What does Vermin Supreme tend to run for? I don't think it's president, is it? No, I thought it is. It's, he's one of those like non-party yeah, affiliated uh, perennial candidates or whatever. I get all these guys who wear something hilarious and conical on their heads <laughs> mixed up. They all look the same to me. Man, and speaking of perennial candidates, RIP to a real one. Won't have uh, old uh, uh, Lyndon LaRouche to kick around anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, he's he's pretty much done at this point. That guy was so reliable. Every four years, he'd run for president and talk about how, you know, the lizard people were conspiring with the Queen of England to deal cocaine. And I'm still actually kind of concerned about that, and I hope that the DSA will address it at some point. Uh, we have no official comment at this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's It's been a blast and uh, awesome news coming out of Chicago. So really amazing timing. Yeah, absolute congratulations yeah, and solidarity with everything the DSA is doing in Chicago. It's just been tremendous. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And uh, shout out to DSA chapters all across the country. There is absolutely no reason that you can't do what we did. So get at it. Hell yeah. Leonard Pierce, uh, while we've got you, please go ahead and plug... You know, anything you want, uh, especially you on Twitter, because you're very good. That's where I found you. Oh, sure. Well, uh, you can read my writing at leonardpierce.com. 
whatever projects I have are going to be linked from there. Uh, I also update it with uh, political and uh, cultural writing every so often. I'm on Twitter at, at Leonard Pierce. And if you're interested in the DSA, you can find them online pretty easily. And Chicago DSA is at chicagodsa.org. We also do a online and print publication called Midwest Socialist. You can go to midwestsocialist.com. And uh, we like to take submissions from socialist groups and organizations all throughout the Midwest, not just Chicago. So, uh, you know, we like to hear from people uh, who are outside of the big cities and are still, you know, doing organizing work in, uh, in different situations. And uh, I guess that's about it. Outstanding. Well, uh, listeners know that small, especially plains-based, especially rural sort of leftism is absolutely our bread and butter. So uh, all solidarity to all of the groups that Leonard just mentioned. And you can follow us if you're not already on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. And I'm Matthew. I'm on Twitter, mostly shitposting, but sometimes being political at Matt DeGuate with a W and Brendan Williams also. I'm at Brendan Williams with one L. It's been a week, you guys. This was a really great episode. The high note was like half the episode. It was amazing. This has never happened, I don't think. (laughs) Uh, We're off next week uh, because I'm going to be attending an out-of-the-country wedding, but we'll be back with hopefully if it works out a very special Ooh. guest um the, yeah. the week after Ooh, that man i hope you do not get locked uh outside of the country when we close the borders so good luck to you on that one risky play well like I, like i said on slack if that happens i'm just gonna you know pursue my dream of moving down to belize and opening up a guest house with like a two hours a day brunch menu uh we'll do it all work around and stuff i just want to be able to live on the beach and go snorkeling you should maybe just do that if they don't close the borders too i mean <laughs> yeah no that's a, that's a good point yeah i'll be pretty close so hey leonard thanks again for being with us thank you guys oh that was awesome <laughs>